You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. at a map of Earth. Look again a dozen years later. It'll be different. National boundaries will change, sure, but so will geographic ones. Over deep time, they change dramatically. Take California. Today, one state. Tomorrow, a series of islands. Find out what a globe will look like in a hundred million years and why Earth's not the only world with a whole lot of shaking going on. It's Land on the Run on Big Picture Science. The time, 100 million years ago. The place, the local map shop. Dramatis Personae, shopkeeper, and first-time globe buyer. But there were no humans 100 million years ago. Shh, 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 go with it. And then this globe here is one of our popular models. There sure is a lot of blue on this side. In fact, it's all blue. Uh, yes, but turn it around. Oh, well, but it's all brown on that side. One big brown lumpy landmass. That's Pangea, where you're standing right now. And it's not just brown. There's grassland and snow, flora, fauna. I was kind of hoping for a globe where the brown and the blue are more equally distributed. I mean, it's prettier that way. Well, we can sell you one of those. You just need to wait. What, you have to back order it? Uh, front order it, actually. They won't be making the new globes for another 100 million years. But I assure you, it will be delightful. You're at the top of our waiting list. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, I'll, I'll take this moon globe. Oh, yeah, those are good forever. Fast forward 100 million years, and Pangaea breaks up into the less unified but far more interesting world of continents that we know today. South America pulls away from Africa. Adios, African amigo. North America pulls away from Europe. Good riddance. Now let's pour the wine. And Antarctica heads to the bottom of the world. The point is that Earth's maps are continually in flux. Plate tectonics, continental drift, subductions, strike-slip faults. All of this reshapes our Earth and has for billions of years. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back for a wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're headed. And in this hour, where plate tectonics is taking us, there'll be more earthquakes. California faces the big one, and we learn that quakes come in clusters. In the short term, this could be disastrous. In the long term, the seismic activity will reshape North America and eventually the world. And without it, life would not exist. A world without moving plates would be a world without you. It's Land on the Run. You can think of plate tectonics as being like sheets of ice floating in the Arctic Ocean. You know, these ice sheets are constantly bumping up against one another, and when they do that, one might go over the edge of the second one and pushing the second one down and the first one goes up and so forth. Well, a big discovery in the 20th century was that this same process was happening not with sheets of ice, but with the continents, giant sheets of rock floating on liquid hot magma. The surface of the Earth is divided into tectonic plates, and the boundaries of these plates stick together. 
Eventually, because of the motion of the plates, they have to slide, and when they do, either one goes under the other and you get volcanoes, or one slips past the other and you get earthquakes. And we're still learning a whole lot about these geologic movers and shakers. Okay, I'm Dr. John Dvorak. My main interests are active volcanoes and earthquakes, and of course, the history of science which in his case recently is the history of the San Andreas Fault. The juncture is that where the North American and Pacific plates jam up against each other, an 800-mile-long fault that runs nearly the length of the state, causing small earthquakes, some moderate ones, and threatening to unleash the big one. Now, one image people have when they hear about the big one is that it's going to cause California to drop into the ocean. Uh, No, it's not going to drop into the ocean. But it is going to slide away. And it's been sliding for some 5 million years or so. And if we project this into the future, 5, 10 million years, uh, most of what is known as California today is going to be a collection of large islands out there in the North Pacific. And so California will eventually be sliced and diced into three or six or 10 big islands. But until that happens, there's still plenty of seismic activity to pique our interest. Not only our vigilance for the big one, but also the recent discovery that earthquakes come in clusters. John Dvorak is the author of Earthquake Storms, the fascinating history and volatile future of the San Andreas Fault. Well, an earthquake cluster or an earthquake storm, they're not random and they don't reoccur like clockwork. They do cluster in time and space. When you get a cluster of large earthquakes, that's an earthquake storm. Within what sort of time frame do you get them? I mean, is it all within, you know, days, weeks, years, centuries? What? Well, they happen over a period of decades. Everyone's familiar with the idea of foreshocks, a main shock, and aftershocks. And that idea is still valid. But the concept of the earthquake storm is more general. It includes that and goes beyond in that one large earthquake will sort of beget another large earthquake. The most famous example went on in in the northern part of Turkey along a a fault system known as the North Anatolian between 1939 and 1999. And there were 13 major earthquakes along that fault system. And many people have drawn the analogy to the San Andreas. How does that work? I mean, I'm I'm trying to envision what's going on there. I I see the buildup in, you know, stress between two plates that are moving horizontally, and then eventually, you know, they give way, it slides, and sounds to me like, you know, now the pressure is off. Why why would I have an earthquake storm? Well, the whole reason there are earthquakes is that there's a buildup of stress in the crust. But one single earthquake will not release it. And there's this concept of stress transfer. That's sort of like if you take a very big uh, rubber band and you put some slits in it and you start to pull it, not all of the slits are going to grow at the same time. One will expand, and that will cause others to expand. So it's sort of this train of events that will happen. In order to release the buildup of stress between the plates, you need large earthquakes, like seven and a half and larger. And in California... It's just been remarkably quiet the last 100 years. Since 1906, there's only been one significant earthquake on or near the San Andreas Fault, and that was the Loma Prieta one in 1989. Are are you worried about this? Should we be worried about this? And in particular, uh, the San Andreas Fault. What, What parts of the state are most vulnerable to damage there? Well, the part that people have their their eyes on mostly, uh, certainly out to Hayward, which is on the east side of uh, San Francisco Bay. People also point a great deal to the San Jacinto Fault. That runs east of Los Angeles, just south of San Bernardino. But the one that people are most concerned about is the very southern part of the San Andreas Fault, running from just north of Palm Springs down to uh, Indio and the Salton Sea. And that's because that part has not broken for over 300 years. And in order to release all the stress that's built up in 300 years, the ground is going to have to slide anywhere from 27 to 40 feet. And that means one or more major earthquakes. You also write about what you call paleoseismology. Can you tell me what that is and what you can learn from it? Right. Paleoseismology is you go out and you dig down into a fault. You try to figure out when those two blocks, those two crustal blocks may have moved. For example... Think of a layered cake. 
as you cut into a layered cake and you can see all of the horizons. But if for some reason the baker was not very good and the layers have cracks in them, you'd be able to see that as you cut the cake or as you dig into a fault. So what have we learned from uh, paleoseismology that uh, that you find particularly interesting? I mean, may- maybe you just learn about, you know, old quakes gives you some idea of how frequently they occur? Well, that's right. And just recently, we've actually learned that there was an earthquake storm in the Bay Area. It lasted from about the years 1730 to 1760. And during those 30 years, there were six major earthquakes. Two of them were probably about the size of the 1906 event. All six of them were equal to or greater than Loma Prieta. And it wasn't just the San Andreas that ruptured. The Hayward ruptured, the Calaveras ruptured, the San Gregorio Fault ruptured, as well as the northern San Andreas and the southern San Andreas, all within 30 years. Maybe you could explain the scale used to measure exactly how strong these earthquakes are and how destructive they are. Everybody's heard of the Richter scale, but I, I don't know how many people understand what it is. Uh, you know, uh, there's a magnitude 9 earthquake, and at which point my house probably collapses, and then there's a magnitude 6 earthquake, which only sounds like it's three different and not much happens. Well, that's right. It doesn't sound like if you just go from 3 to 6 that it's very much. Well, the way that earthquakes are measured is called the uh, the magnitude scale. Uh, the first one was devised by this man named Charles Richter. In principle, it's very simple to understand. If you're standing at a place, say 100 miles from an earthquake, and the ground moves a tenth of an inch, we'll call that a magnitude one earthquake. If another earthquake happens in the same place, but you move one inch, then that's a magnitude two earthquake. So... As we go up in magnitudes, we go up by a factor of 10 in how much we're, we're actually moving around. So it's defined by the, the, the ground movement, not by the amount of energy in it or anything like that. Uh, that's right. As it was originally done by Charles Richter, it's ground movement. And so as you can see, as we go from a magnitude 3 to a magnitude 9, we're talking about a million times in ground movement. Yeah, and that, that sounds pretty big to me. When can we expect the next big earthquake on the San Andreas Fault? Well, that is the key question. And the answer is no one can predict an earthquake. With our present knowledge, the best we can do is give a probability of earthquake. And there is essentially a, a 99.6% chance that there will be a destructive earthquake in California in our lifetime. And if you want to go down in the numbers a little deeper there's something like a 65% chance it'll be somewhere around San Francisco and a little higher percent that it will be in the Los Angeles region. What would a magnitude, I don't know, 8 or 9 earthquake do to Los Angeles today? Well, that is a highly and hotly debated question. Among the things that I can say for sure, the cell phones aren't going to work. The water system's not going to work. The electricity won't work, and the transportation system won't work. And the question is, how long are these systems going to be out? For some people, it may be for a matter of minutes. For other people, it'll be days to weeks, depending on exactly the time of day it hit, exactly where it is. Is there any way to predict earthquakes? I mean, there are warning systems for earthquakes. I, I don't think we have one here in California yet, but they're talking about it. Uh, I don't think they give us a heck of a lot of heads up that something's happening, but clearly they can measure something that tells you that a tremor's on its way. Well, yes, that's right. There's something called a seismic early warning system. Uh, there's one in Mexico, and there's one in Japan, and they work very well. The idea is that the earthquake waves move slower than you're able to send something down, say, a telephone line. For example, if I'm here and you're studying, say, 100 miles away, and I'm talking to you on the telephone, and I say, you know, the earth is shaking right now, you will have probably uh, 20 to 30 seconds to do something, and then the ground will start shaking where you are. Well, 20 to 30 seconds might actually be valuable in terms of saving lives, at least. Well, yes, because you'll be able to stop traffic, you'll be able to stop elevators and have people get off, you'll be able to stop trains, You'll be able to turn off various valves for natural gas and oil pipelines and water and aqueducts and get ready for the strong shaking. 
uh, speaking of the big ones, then suppose uh, California does have the big one. Uh, can we stop worrying after that for a long period of time? Uh, no. One of the things we've learned in the last few decades, people used to think that once there was a very strong shaking, that was it. And there would only be these aftershocks. But we know now that if you have a large earthquake, the probability goes way up that another one is about to strike. So that if you have, say, a magnitude 7 earthquake in California, uh, there's about a 1 in 10 chance you'll have an equal or greater earthquake in the next three days. That sounds, uh, that sounds somewhat ominous, but at least it's a, it's a good thing to know because you can prepare for that. John Dvorak, thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, it was my pleasure. John Dvorak is the author of Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault. Coming up, why is land in the western U.S. rising? Also, you may have heard of the supercontinent that used to dominate the Earth like a pancake on a plate, Pangaea. Well, get ready to meet the future map of Earth, Amasia. It will amaze you. It's Land on the Run from Big Picture Science. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Geophysicist Adrian Borsa and his team really dig studying Earth's tectonic plates, but they never need a shovel. They survey these slow-speed movements using GPS, and while doing so have made a surprising discovery. The land had moved, but not because of seismic activity. With a vast network of GPS stations, the team from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, discovered sub-millimeter changes in the height of the ground. The landscape of the western United States, they found, is literally rising up. And the reason has to do with another phenomenon, a grim one, the extended California drought. The Golden State is suffering one of the most severe dry spells in decades. Now, it's usual to think of water scarcity as an issue in the sky, not enough wet stuff falling down. But drought is also a consequence of what's stored beneath our feet. Water tables have dried up in underground aquifers. Our study found that we're missing 63 trillion gallons of water, but that may not be as evocative as saying 56 cubic miles of water. Somebody told us it was half the size of Lake Erie. So it's a lot of water, however you, you look at it. And the loss of that H2O creates a cavity, but the result is not that the land collapses or sinks in to fill that empty space. Rather, the land is rising up to accommodate the change. Some parts of California, including the Sierra Nevada, have risen by more than half an inch or 15 millimeters due to the loss of the water in these aquifers. The groundwater that people talk about is in these aquifers, and they're at depth. It's what you would drill a well down to if you were, let's say, homesteading or you were a farmer. So the Central Valley of California, where all the agriculture happens, or the main agriculture happens in this state, they're you know hundreds of meters thick, as I understand, and they're very old. So the water's been collecting there for a very long time. A question I've had ever since I was a kid and first heard about this uh, idea that there were aquifers, you know, thick layers of water underneath the ground I was walking on was, well, why doesn't it sink down any farther? I mean, you know, I pour a, a glass of water onto the ground here and most of it, it disappears very quickly into the ground. So I figure, okay, if there's all that water just uh, 100 feet or so down, why, why doesn't it keep on going? In fact, why doesn't it go all the way to the center of the earth? Well, 
the water is stopped on its way down by various barriers, which are geologic barriers. So different kinds of rock have different permissivities that will allow water to pass through or not. And usually water stops up against what's known as an aquitard and then starts going horizontally or just pools. So these aquifers that people are drilling tend to be large pools of water underground, very extensive, very broad. When, when you say aquitard, that sounds like something a dancing pile yeah. of water might wear. What, 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 what's an aquitard? So uh, a rock formation that would retard the flow of water through it. Other types of rocks may just allow water to freely flow through or relatively freely. Okay, so we have this supply of water down there, and uh, I don't think it's a surprise to hear that uh, it's been diminishing because uh, farmers are drilling wells, uh, there's uh, not enough rainfall to supply their water needs, and so forth. And you've been studying uh, something that uh, showed a rather surprising result, that uh, taking water out of the water table is not causing the ground to sink as much as it's causing it to rise up. What, what exactly is happening? So there are two effects. If you are pumping water, locally you will see the land subside, so the land will sink. On a broader scale, the loss of that water weight that you've taken out and then has evaporated will cause Earth to rebound. The rock in the crust is like an elastic layer, and it does the same as, let's say, a block of rubber. If you were to push your finger down in it, it uh, sinks and take the pressure off, it would rebound. And that's what we're seeing. The rocks are actually rebounding as a result of this drought. Well, what's the magnitude of the rebound? I mean, roughly, how, how much rebound are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, 30 feet? Are we talking about 30 millimeters? What are we talking? These are very, very small from the standpoint of our everyday existence. You know, we measured four millimeters on average across the western United States with 15 millimeters in the mountains. That does not sound like a lot, but from the standpoint of the GPS observations we're making, this is a huge, huge signal. Is this problem, this uh, uh, disappearance of the water table causing a rise in the average level of the landscape, is this just uh, limited to the Central Valley of California? Does it extend far beyond that? We discovered the, that the entire western U.S. is uplifting, and that's, for us at least, it was a very new finding. People have known, and there have been previous studies showing that smaller areas were, were undergoing changes. So the entire western U.S., and it's not just uplift from the drought. If you go back several years to when there was a very wet year in California, you see the land subsides under the extra water load. So large-scale crustal motions extending pretty much everywhere you look. This sounds to me, I mean, we're, we're not talking about fractions of a millimeter here. We're talking about things you could see if you could have a, I don't know, a time-lapse picture of, your, you know, somebody's backyard. Uh, doesn't that affect, I mean, buildings and, and things like that? I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, a substantial fraction of an inch or probably in some places even more. Sure. And, and when you talked about the time-lapse film, we did that for the entire U.S. And sure enough, the U.S. is going up and down. It's just that these are small motions, and the key is they're very long, long wavelength is what we say, but they, they occur over very long distances. So at any given location, there's not a strong change in elevation. You'd have to look over long distances to see it. So to a building, it's just going to look like a small motion upwards. Yeah, so the whole building sort of goes up at once. It is yes. that one corner goes exactly. up. Exactly. Okay, well, I, I can understand that, but doggone it, when you're talking about <laughs> these kinds of changes over, you know, long distances, uh, then I'm thinking, well, that sounds like, you know, tectonic kind of distances. I mean, maybe, maybe this is causing earthquakes. Is it causing earthquakes? This is a, a question that I think is still up for additional research. We took a look specifically because previous studies have suggested a, a statistical link between changes due to water loading, uh, such as what we're seeing. Uh, these are seasonal changes they were looking at, and seismicity, saying there, there are more earthquakes at certain times of the year. We looked at the impact of the loading that we found on the San Andreas Fault. This is the big fault running uh, through California. And we didn't see anything we thought was, was significant. So you don't see any strong connection between this up and down motion and, and earthquakes. And yet, you know, people say that, well, in some cases, fracking for example, which is a different way of changing, you know, the, the amount of material under the ground there, uh, has caused earthquakes in the Midwest and things like that. I mean, this is a possibility, isn't it? 
Absolutely. So in the fracking case, there is a, a proven change in seismicity, micro seismicity, so small earthquakes. And that's because where you would inject water, you induce very high stresses close to the injection point. And, and that's enough to cause the earth to change. What we're talking about with this uh, water loading and unloading are much smaller stresses at any given point. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me. There's a lot of water in the universe, right? I mean, it's probably, <laughs> I think it's the most common compound in the whole cosmos, and here we are worrying about, you know, relatively small amounts, although if you're a farmer, you don't look at it that way. Yeah, it's, it's not how much there is, it's where it is, where it's located. I mean, we were asked this, you know, what happens to all this water? And it appears somewhere else. Maybe it's dumped into the oceans, maybe it appears on land, but our problem here in the Western U.S. right now is not enough water, and the real long-term concern is, do we think this is an ongoing concern? Is it going to get drier here over the long period? Uh, are there such things in Greenland, for example? Because, uh, you know, the melting ice in Greenland is probably causing Greenland to sort of bounce back, too. It is. There is, in fact, a network of stations around the periphery where you have the mountains cropping out and you have hard rock, and those GPS stations show the same kind of signal, unloading, that the loss of ice mass causes the crust there to rebound in the same way. Sounds as if Greenland is coming up in the world. <laughs> well, finally, Adrian, I, as a geophysicist, maybe you could comment on this. It, it, we think of the ground as being, you know, well, rock solid or stable or unchanging, that kind of thing, except on very long time scales as the plates, uh, continental plates slide around and that kind of thing. We don't think of them, you know, going up and down, sort of like, I don't know, the breathing of a dog or something like that. <laughs> it, it, it sounds as if there's a lot more going on under our feet than, than we generally think of. Absolutely. I mean, the Earth is a very complex system. It responds to things that we don't even know and it responds to things we know well. But certainly it's wonderful to be able to actually see these things with this fantastic instrumentation, things that we can't see with our own eyes. So yes, the Earth is a living, breathing organism, as it were. Adrian Borsa, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. Adrian Borsa is a geophysicist at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. Well, we've known about continental drift for, uh, you know, maybe close to 100 years now, but this is continental lift, and it's because we're taking these liquids out from underneath the, the, the surface here. I mean, we've done that for a long time when it comes to oil, but now it's because of water. We're taking out some of the water table, and of course, with fracking, very interesting, vertical changes in the topography. Right, and with continental drift, we can't influence that much at all. I will go ahead and say we cannot influence continental drift, but this lift we can influence because of our habits. And so we realize that the Earth's land masses, they not only drift around, but they also go up and they go down. So that's a lot of movement for a planet that feels day to day pretty stable. Earthquakes, they're just another manifestation of crustal rearrangement, all caused by plate tectonics. But, you know, what does all this shifting mean for maps, in particular the maps of the future? Plate tectonics, after all, keeps the globe manufacturers in business. It's a steady business, but it's very slow. Uh, but the gradual and this continual drift of the continental plates means that the arrangement of land masses you see today is not obviously what it once was or what it will be tomorrow. Consider the situation 300 million years ago. Imagine Africa, South America, Antarctica, and so on, gathered tightly together like a huddling football team into one mass called Pangaea. The dinosaurs came to know it well, and while there may be one Superman, there may have been many supercontinents in Earth's past, according to geologist Ross Mitchell and his team at Yale University, and also in its future. Writing in the journal Nature a couple of years ago, they described what a supercontinent of the future might look like. They even gave it a name, Amasia, America and Asia. It would be created from the merging of northward-bound continents over the Arctic. Ross Mitchell is now a postdoctoral scholar at the California Institute of Technology, and while he wasn't here when Pangaea defined the Earth, he has a good idea of what it looked like. Supercontinent Pangaea formed in kind of two waves, a southern half that we typically call Gondwana, uh, and a northern half known as La Russia. And finally, those two halves uh, combined together to meet at the equator. 
about 250 million years ago. And Pangaea essentially contained all of the continents we know, uh, plus or minus South China, uh, assembled and nestled right on the equator. So you could walk from one end of Pangaea, the, the northern tip of Pangaea, down to the southern tip without crossing water. There, there could have been uh, an amazing train system. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> well, if you look at a map today and you look at the eastern edge of South America and then you look over to the western edge of Africa, you could see how these two puzzle pieces might fit together. But what is the evidence that they once did? Well, so fossils, uh, to which you allude, definitely provided the first kind of instincts that geologists gathered, thinking that there must be a way to, to juxtapose these continents together. But really, uh, in the last 50 or so years, the so-called plate tectonic revolution has been the reconstruction of the kind of rewinding of the tape, if you will, of closing up the internal oceans, these oceans that rifted apart the continents, closing them back up to find that original jigsaw arrangement. So all the continents had come together to form this supercontinent, Pangaea. You know, it'd be great if we could get nations to come together and similarly <laughs> collaborate today. But then this landmass broke up into the continents that we know today. The mm -hmm. plates beneath them, were they breaking up as well, or have we always had the same number of continental plates? No. So uh, plate tectonics is an organizing system that kind of drifts between very low order numbers of plates, as we like to say, meaning just kind of two plates, a continental plate and a super ocean plate, and many plates like the 12 we see today. So that is the supercontinent cycle, really, in a nutshell, the evolution between many plates to very few. Now, Pangaea always grabs the headlines as the one supercontinent that ruled the Earth, but it may not <laughs> have been, it may not have been the, the first are the only supercontinent. Thanks for mentioning that, Molly. Uh, a lot of my research tries to get people to realize that we should talk about supercontinents, plural. Really, it's one of the most fundamental processes that's been going on for arguably three billion years of the four and a half billion years that Earth has been around. So that being said, there have been at least three supercontinents like Pangaea, possibly four. You've learned this by studying the magnets in the rock, and these are tiny iron filaments, I think, that have been magnetized. How do they tell you how the continents have moved? That's right. We use the tool paleomagnetism, which just means when, when a, a lava solidifies, the angle at which the, the magnetic minerals in it align tend to be with the magnetic field lines. So as a continent drifts relative to the magnetic north pole, we can interpret that apparent drift of the, the magnetic pole actually as the continental drift of the continent itself relative to the pole. So by measuring these paleomagnetic poles through billions of years of Earth history from all of the continents, we begin to put the pieces of the puzzles together. Now, all of this got you thinking and studying Pangaea mm -hmm. and, and the other supercontinents, plural, um, what the mm -hmm. next supercontinent might look like. Now, there have been theories that this would mm -hmm. occur. All the continents would come together around Africa or something like that. But that is not what you believe, and your team did some work on this. You published a paper in Nature. What is your theory? Well, it, the present day, if you think about it, is really kind of in the middle of a supercontinent cycle. And, and typically the models for the formation of the next supercontinent had either invoked uh, closing the Atlantic Ocean, the interior ocean of Pangaea, or the Pacific Ocean, the exterior ocean to Pangaea. Uh, so the, the traditional models were that Pangaea would collapse back in on itself, or that Pangaea would turn itself inside out uh, and form on the other side of the globe than Pangaea was. Now, our model uh, from our, my team at Yale was quite precisely in between the previous models. We said a smack dab in the middle, 90 degrees away uh, from Pangaea, is where we expect the next supercontinent to form. And this is because Pangaea was surrounded by a ring of fire, if you will, of subduction. So any block that rifted off Pangaea would have drifted around the world until it collided again along that peripheral exterior. So when we look 90 degrees away from the center of Pangaea, Africa, 
When we look 90 degrees away from Africa, what ocean basins do we find? We find the Caribbean Ocean and we find the Arctic Ocean. So it's those oceans instead of the Atlantic and the Pacific that we predict will close. And when you close the Caribbean Sea, you collide the Americas together. And when you collide the Arctic Ocean, you suture the Americas with Asia, thus giving us the name and inspiring the name AmAsia for the next supercontinent. And it would be one continent, though, minus Antarctica, I believe, which stays at the bottom. Well, Antarctica will move north, either the way of the Americas, or it will move north the way of Australia. So it's quite possible even Antarctica is not excluded in the long run. Okay, so where we are right now, we're in North America. Where does North America go? So North America moves straight to the pole and meets with Asia. (laughs) Okay, it meets with Asia and then South America? South America rotates a little bit, but essentially uh, we'll have uh, the coastline of South America nestling right along the coastline of North America. Oh, so it it, it comes up like that. It swings up. Okay, okay. All, all the continents are moving north. Well, that'll save on some travel fares. By the way, will Australia ever see any tectonic activity? I mean, a mountain range hasn't been produced there. I mean, there hasn't been any tectonic activity, I think, in about 80 million years or so. Will it always be dormant? Oh, no. Uh, dramatic times are ahead for the lost continent. Australia very much will go the way of India in the sense uh, that it will someday continue, well, it's still continuing to move north, but uh, that northward migration will ultimately lead to the creation of a Himalayan-scale mountain range as Australia collides with the ever-growing Asia somewhere in between India and present-day Japan. And finally, Ross, when people think about geology, we're thinking about things that happen over very long amounts of time, mm. deep, deep time, we call it. But it's not static. What what you understand is that um, the Earth is a quite dynamic system. Absolutely. It's easy to get stuck in the way of the world as we know it. But there are all these clues in the rocks sitting around us. And it doesn't take too much of an effort to interrogate and learn what those clues might have told us about uh, the not-too-distant past. Ross Mitchell, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for your interest, Molly. Ross Mitchell is a geologist and postdoctoral scholar at the California Institute of Technology. Well, extraordinarily interesting to hear that a supercontinent is coming again, Asia in this case. And, uh, you know, aside from the practical benefits of being able to connect everybody with railroads, we're also going to connect all the species. We'll have fewer beaches. I guess that's the downside. If you can't remember the name of that supercontinent, do you have a case of amnesia? I, and you, you know, you might. I, you, it's going to have real impact on the life, of course, uh, whatever life there is here in another 100 or 150 million years whenever this happens. So if we look at Pangaea as it was breaking up 100 million years ago, what effect did that have on the species that were living there? Well, I mean, you know, what did you have? You had the dinosaurs, of course, were in full flower. And now suddenly, you know, they get separated from one another, all other animals and plants as well. And that means they can go their own evolutionary pathway without being homogenized by competition all in one one big landmass, so it but, increases diversity. But it wasn't sudden. It didn't happen suddenly, the breakup. No, no, no. no, it didn't happen suddenly, but it happens. You know, it starts with you're, you're separated by a river from competitors, and then that river gets wider and wider every year by about an inch. And eventually it means you don't have to worry about those guys anymore, and you can go your own evolutionary way. And that increases diversity. So there are some animals that would have evolved as Pangaea broke up that would never have had a chance when it was a supercontinent. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's true. I mean, you look at the marsupials of Australia. Do you think that would have happened if Australia had remained joined to, I don't know, the the Americas or Asia? I, I don't know, but I, I would be surprised. What about humans? Do you think humans would have evolved had Pangaea stayed as one supercontinent? Really a good question. It's hard to know. Hard to know. But it also raises the question of what's going to evolve when we have a Pangaea again. Coming up, Earth may be a singularly lovely planet, but it's not the only mover and shaker in the solar system. We have found evidence on Jupiter's icy moon Europa that there may be the equivalent of plate tectonics within the ice shell of Europa as well. It's Land on the Run from Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, 
a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so one thing you can really say about the Earth, it's not exactly terra firma. Welcome to Solid Ground, starring me, your host, Ringo Fire, and the countdown to this week's most stable landmasses here on Solid Ground. Coming in at number one, Australia. That top stable landmass is Australia. With few fault lines and no other plates to slam into, it's been free of tectonic activity for more than 80 million years. Yes, Australia is number one on this week's Solid Ground. This week... And every week, really, it's the same thing, with earthquakes in Turkey and volcanic explosions in Iceland, even that quake in Missouri a few years back. The only landmass that isn't shaking and exploding is Australia. Is it too much to ask that Japan settle down, or that the hot spot under the Hawaiian Islands cool it just to keep my job interesting? But these things could happen, so we might have competition for stability any day now. That would shake things up here on solid ground. See you next week, folks. So overall, Earth is a restless place. Until recently, we figured that its unsettled nature was special. Other planets and moons in our solar system didn't seem to have the shifting landscape the way our planet does. But while working at the University of Idaho, geologist Simon Cattenhorn and his team discovered evidence that Jupiter's icy moon Europa may have its own version of plate tectonics. Not due to shifting rock but there's something really cool. You could say that talking to Simon about Europa is the ultimate icebreaker. People tend to think of ice as being fundamentally different to rock, but in many ways it can behave the same way. We know that ice fractures the way that rock can. It can have faults in it the way that rock can. It can uh, melt and produce lavas the way that rock can. And so there's no reason to suspect that it may not also have the capability of having plate tectonics like rocks can. Maybe you could describe the ice on Europa because, you know, most people, they think about ice, they think about those cubes in their uh, kitchen uh, freezer, uh, but temperatures on Europa are quite a bit cooler than that. Is it the same kind of ice? Well, it is water ice, but what we have to remember is at the surface of Europa, the ice is in contact with the extreme cold of space. And so at, at the surface, the temperature is very, very chilly, 100 Kelvin, which would be minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit. So extremely cold and brittle ice. But the ice is also very, very thick. It's 20 to 30 kilometers thick. And at the base of the ice, where it's in contact with a, a water ocean, it's going to be the same temperature as the ice in your freezer. So there's a, a tremendous range in the temperature of the ice. All right, well, let me just get a handle on how big these slabs are. You said that they can be, I don't know, tens of miles thick. Are they also tens of miles across, or are they bigger than that? Okay, they they are definitely not tens of miles thick. So let let me clarify what we mean when we talk about plates on Europa. The, The ice shell itself, the entire ice shell, is probably up to 30 kilometers thick. We don't really know for sure. But the plates that we suggest are moving around are not the entire ice shell moving above the water of the European Ocean, but rather it's just the very outermost, very cold, brittle layer of the ice shell. It's probably no more than a few miles thick. And it's that part that's moving around on top of the warmer ice that's sitting underneath it. How fast are they moving? Well, that we don't know. If they're moving at the same type of rates that we see on Earth, then we're probably looking at anywhere from a few millimeters to a few tens of millimeters per year. Okay, so a fast-growing fingernail or something like that. Right. 
Well, that brings up the question, how can you be sure that they really are moving uh, unless you've actually seen motion? Have, have you any evidence that things are really moving or is this just, you know, a, a nice idea? Yeah, well, the, the question that you're asking is probably very similar to the questions that the scientific community asked when plate tectonics was first suggested on Earth, this idea that maybe the continents were drifting. Back then, in the early part of the 20th century, there was no direct evidence of that either. So the evidence was in the geology. What you could see seemed to fit together in the past, and then to use that evidence to infer that motions had occurred. But on Europa, we also have to rely on the geology, just like was done in the early days of plate tectonics on Earth. And we see a lot of evidence that pieces have moved around in order to reconstruct the ancient geology. We have to move pieces backward into place, like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. Now, Simon, on Earth, the tectonic plates are set in motion by the churning of hot rock, magma. It's just a few tens of miles down, I think. Kind of a slow roiling, boiling heat source. But on Europa, you don't have that. What, what's causing this motion? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And keep in mind that even after many decades, you know, half a century of studying plate tectonics on Earth, we still don't know all the details of what drives plate tectonics on Earth. But we do know that there are some mechanisms that are very important. For example, seafloor spreading, where magma, as you suggested, rises up and comes onto the ocean floor and helps push the plates apart. We see something similar in Europa. There's evidence where uh, large cracks have formed in the ice shell and have split apart, and material has moved upward from below to fill in that crack and push the two sides apart, very similar to seafloor spreading on Earth. Plus, you mentioned the uh, motions in the interior of Earth, and we do feel that the interior of the ice shell of Europa does have a convection system, very similar to if you look at a, a pot boiling on the stove and you can see the pasta coming up in the middle of the pot and moving across to the edge and going back down again. We think that the ice in the ice shell of Europa moves around like that, kind of like a lava lamp. All this tectonic activity, I mean, clearly it's going to push some of the ice down into the liquid ocean underneath, the ocean that swathes Europa, but does it bring anything up? I mean, there might be interesting things in that ocean down there. Yeah, you know, this is one of the fundamental questions about Europa is, is there any communication between the ocean and what we see at the surface? And we do know, that, as I mentioned, where there's the equivalent of seafloor spreading on Europa, where material rises up from below, that it's likely bringing up materials that may have originally been sourced within the ocean and putting them up onto the surface. The nice thing about subduction is that it can take those materials that may have been sitting at the surface for tens of millions of years in contact with the harsh radiation environment of space, which then creates these oxidants at the surface, these chemical compounds that can then be pushed back down into the ice shell by the process of subduction. So if I understand that correctly, I mean, what you're suggesting is that these chemical compounds, these oxidants, as you call them, they're on the surface being generated by, you know, all the the radiation slamming into this cold little moon. I mean, that, that's kind of a food for microbes, perhaps. And, and maybe, you know, this tectonic activity is, is supplying food to what's below and maybe bringing some of the life that's down there up to the surface where, you know, robot explorers could find it. Yes, that's a very good point. And as you are probably aware, Europa is considered one of the most promising targets in the solar system for thinking about a habitable environment. And so if there is a plate tectonic system, it does provide a mechanism to take the necessary chemical compounds down uh, into a potentially habitable environment. And as you state, if there is also a mechanism to bring that material up closer to the surface, then that makes a very promising target in the future to try and collect samples from Europa that might actually be sourced from the ocean itself. You know, when people talk about a planet being habitable, they usually mean that it has the right temperature for liquid water, a bit of an atmosphere, and so forth. They don't usually say, oh, and it also has to have plate tectonics. How essential are plate tectonics for life here on Earth? Well, many would say there's a very important link between plate tectonics on Earth and the development of life. Keep in mind that when you look at plate boundaries on Earth, in the, the deepest, darkest portions of Earth's oceans where 
plates are moving apart and new ocean crust is being formed, these areas uh, have a source of heat, of energy, uh, a source of chemicals. And of course, it's in a water environment. And sure enough, those locations are thriving with life. Simon Kattenhorn, thank you so very much for being with us. My pleasure. Simon Kattenhorn is a structural and planetary geologist. He did his work on Europa while he was at the University of Idaho. Another world with tectonic activity. You know, you see bumper stickers here in California that say, stop all seismic activity. Clearly, we don't want to do that, actually. It was dismaying to hear that even when California experiences the big one, we can't all rest easy because earthquakes, it seems, now come in these storms or these clusters. And even if they're stretched over a period of years, there may be other big ones soon after. Yeah. Well, those are the downsides of uh, tectonic activity, but there's also the upside because, after all, if you didn't have tectonic activity, you couldn't recycle the carbon compounds at the bottom of the ocean that get spewed back up into the atmosphere through volcanoes, and, you know, the Earth would slowly cool off. It would be like Mars, you know, cold, really cold. And another upside to this tectonic activity may be that it's essential for life on this planet. And there's a suggestion that the tectonic activity on Europa, if that's indeed what's happening with those crashing ice plates, that it might make the moon more hospitable to life. Yeah, well, it might be feeding any microbes that live underneath all that ice. That's right. So, you know, tectonic activity, I mean, we used to think, okay, maybe only the Earth, and now there's at least one indication that this may be a very, very common thing. Shaking going on may be happening on a lot of worlds. Now, do we know for certain that it's not happening on, say, Jupiter or Mars, Venus? Well, uh, it's hard to say. Venus does have volcanic activity, but doesn't seem to have any plate tectonics. And Mars, there are indications that possibly in its younger days, very youngest days, it may have had some tectonic activity, but it doesn't have it today. Uh, You have the other planets of the solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. You can't tell whether they have tectonic activity or not because there's no solid land there, you can see. It's just the weather. So I find it really interesting that we've already found at least one other world which has tectonic activity. That suggests to me... You'll probably find it everywhere. How the Earth looks today is not how the Earth will look another hundred million years from now. I kind of like that. I like maps. I like the idea I have to buy new ones. Thanks to a stable production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance, and also Gabriel Alvarado-Marin. Also financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced here at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Land on the Run, and if you are moved to want more Big Picture Science, there is plenty on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because the sound quality is so seismic, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, or perhaps you just want to say something nice, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Then, Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.